Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Free Association. It's um, nearly ten past nine in the evening. Uh, sun's starting to go down here. Uh, it's the 22nd of June, 2022. I'm going to take a look on BitChute and see uh, if there's anything worth playing. I know there's a few things worth playing on there. Since this this afternoon, this morning, whenever whenever the last time time was that I had a look. All right, the uh, news and politics section, I think. A little bit of South Front to begin. of another pocket with pro-Kiev troops in the region of Donbass. During the past week, Russian forces achieved a series of important tactical successes in Severodonetsk and its surroundings, blocking the remaining pro-Kiev troops in the Azov plant and capturing most of the nearby industrial area. The advance there was ongoing amid intense strikes on military infrastructure of Kiev's grouping of forces in the region, as well as all around Ukraine in general. The Ukrainian leadership sent large reinforcements to the area. All these troops immediately found themselves in a weak strategic position and just became a tool to create colorful images from the mainstream media. On June 21st, Russian units advanced south of Lysychansk and liberated the towns of Ustinovka, Nanaya Dolina, and the village of Podlesnoe. They reached Rai Alexandrovka and established tight fire control over the only road that leads from the areas of Zolotoy and Goskoe. According to reports, over 2,000 Ukrainian troops are now encircled there. Reports claim that the remaining groups of Kiev's forces are retreating towards Bakhmut and Lysychansk. The estimated number of pro-Kiev troops surrounded in Severodonetsk is about 2,500. Together with the Zolotoy group, this is 4,500. This number is close to that which neo-Nazis from the Azov Battalion and Allied formations had in the Azovstal plant industrial area in the late stages of the Battle of Mariupol. Attempts by the Kiev leadership to organize counterattacks to de-block its forces in these areas will likely lead to only increase in the number of troops trapped around Lysychansk, Bakhmut, Savyansk, and Kramatorsk. However, this is one of the most likely scenarios, as Zelensky and company tend to make decisions that would have larger PR effects. And what could be better than repeating the Mariupol case just in another area? Another option for Kiev is to organize a large attack on Russian positions in the Kherson and Mykolaiv regions, or in the Zaporizhia region, using fresh formations created in the west of Ukraine and supplied with NATO weapons. This move would threaten Russian supply lines from Crimea. 
A large direct advance of Kiev's forces onto the territory of Russia still remains unlikely, contrary to public claims of Ukrainian and Western diplomats accompanied by mainstream media fairy tales. The Ukrainian leadership understands that Russia has been carrying out a limited military operation with a limited force. A large advance of Kiev's units that would target the Russian territory will provoke a full-scale response from Moscow. Therefore, troops loyal to the Kiev government all have chances to participate in a few more decisive battles. Rosalinsky's public image of great leader and die on behalf of the international globalist establishment. Yeah, that was from South Front. What's have we got here? There's a report here from Alexander Makuris, but it's an hour, so I'm, I'm not going to play it all. I might play the first five minutes or so. a further deterioration in the Ukraine's military position in northern Donbass. There are now reports of uh, Russian and militia forces um, tightening uh, their grip uh, in the area around the town of Lysychansk, which is the town which borders upon Severodonetsk, where much of the fighting or much of many of the reports of the fighting in recent weeks have been taking place. Lysychansk has been resupplied by the Ukrainians, uh, basically from Bakhmut, which is um, the Ukraine's major base area, uh, up through two roads. Some time ago, the Russians were able to obstruct most of the traffic along the along one of those roads, the main, uh, larger, more easily used road by establishing uh, what they call fire control over the road. In other words, they weren't in physical control over it, but their artillery was able to intercept traffic on it and therefore reduce the flow of men and material along this road. But there was another smaller road further north that was also used in place of this main road. Well, it seems that the Russians have now actually established roadblocks along the southern uh, main road, and it also seems that they have managed to gain what they call fire control, in other words, shedding distance over the other road, so that the position of the Ukrainian forces in Lysychansk, where they supposedly where the, the, the town, as I said, which adjoins Severodonetsk, and which, by the way, is separated from Severodonetsk by the Seversky Donetsk River. Well, it seems the um, that it seems that Lysychansk is now um, th this resupply of Lysychansk has now become extremely difficult. 
And Ramzan Kadyrov, who is, of course, the leader of Chechnya, but who is also an important Russian military commander, or perhaps I should say an important commander of Russian forces in um, Donbass over the course of this war, now says that the complete encirclement of Lysychansk and the entrapment of all the Ukrainian forces in the Severodonetsk-Lysychansk pocket is now, uh, or cauldron, um, is now um, just hours or days at most away. Now, Kadyrov has on occasion made claims which have turned out to be, uh, shall we say, premature, but he's usually right about the course of events, or in fact, almost invariably right about the course of events, even if he's not always right about the timing. Now, I should say that Severodonetsk, Lysychansk was always something of a pocket or a salient anyway. If you looked at the map, you would see how vulnerable it was to encirclement with resupply into Donbass by Ukraine already difficult. Holding on to a place as exposed as Severodonetsk and Lysychansk made little sense. Um, the Ukrainian military command, uh, led by General Zaluzny, apparently wanted to withdraw from both places. So it seems to the governor of Lugansk, Sergei Gaidai, uh, there were various reports and proposals and suggestions and rumors at various times that uh, Ukraine was indeed going to withdraw from Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, and concentrate his forces further west in more easily defendable lines. But the political leadership in Kiev decided otherwise. And instead of withdrawing troops from Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, Ukraine seems to have reinforced the troops there in order to hold on to these two towns a little longer. And in fact, some of the reports that one is getting, as I've discussed in previous videos, suggest that the troops who were sent to these two towns were in fact some of the best remaining troops that Ukraine has. Why? The um, Ukrainian leadership decided to make Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, um, a place of such importance in the war. Why they decided that this was the place where they were going to turn the Russians back, it's very difficult for me to understand. But as I will discuss shortly, further in this program, there are now increasing reasons to think that the grasp of reality of some of the people in uh, Ukraine's political leadership is increasingly tenuous. All right, that's Alexander Mercurius. Um, that video goes on for another 50, about another 52 minutes. So I'm going to move on from there and see what else we've got in the news and politics section. This is from GB News. Well, I'm not sure what I'm surprised about any 
anything that I've read in it. Of course, I've been speaking about this now for 10 years. Um, you know, I've lived it. I saw exactly what was going on. It just feels like there's report after report after report. Um, and, you know, court case after court case. The evidence is there. And, um, you know, let's just remind people of what happened in Rotherham. We've got thousands of children that was groomed, abused, raped, trafficked, some murdered. We was blamed. We was ignored. And this was covered up. You know, there's no mistake about that. And I'm hearing many, um, you know, professionals saying, well, you know, we didn't quite understand grooming back then. That's absolute nonsense. 10 and 11 year old children was being gang raped. You know, professionals are educated people. It's not rocket science to know that that were wrong. And the fact that not one person will ever be held to account, I think is absolutely disgusting. Rotherham is such a small town. There was over 2,000 survivors just in, you know, the space of um, a, a period of time. There was parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, um, siblings. We're grown now, so we've got children and partners. Thousands and thousands of lives have been ripped apart. And for what? For people to retire, to get pensions, um, and a little slap on the wrist. It's, it's disgusting. All right, let's see what else we've got from GB News. There's always half a dozen reasonably good clips on G on the GB News channel. So let's, uh, I'm going to ignore Nigel Farage for the time being. I can't really ignore Nigel Farage for too long. He's Nigel Farage on Dominic Raab. It's time for Barrage the Barrage. Let's go. Laura asks, how would you have handled the train strikes with regards to the unions? My own feeling, Laura, is they say it's not the role of government. It's not for us to intervene. Well, they've spent 16 billion quid of our money during the pandemic, effectively bailing out the railways. I'd love to have seen Boris Johnson call the bluff of Lynch, the union leader. Invite him into Downing Street. He probably, the union man would probably refuse. That would give the government actually some moral superiority. They haven't done it. Bob Crow, the late Bob Crow, who I may not have, not have agreed with him with everything, but rather liked as a person, told me once that in all the years he ran the RMT, and Boris Johnson was mayor of London, they never had a single meeting. And I think in life, actually, you can show yourself to be the bigger man or woman by inviting somebody in, even if you have a disagreement with them. That is my feeling. Yvonne asks, do you agree that Boris is obviously a Remainer? Now, I don't agree Boris is a Remainer, but I do think most people in this cabinet use Brexit as a political opportunity, not as something they genuinely believed in. And that might have been good in December 19 for the election, but we're now seeing they're not fully delivering. Right, Alex asks, steak and kidney pie or leek and potato? Which one would you go for? I'll go steak and kidney pie. I'll go steak and kidney all the way, all day, every day, no question. John asks, what would you do next to counter the EU in opposition to Rwanda flights? Please, folks, don't believe a word that Dominic Raab said in the House of Commons today. None of it will come true. It's all political posturing. The Bill of Rights will not 
give a superiority over the ECHR in Strasbourg, which is not what it was set up to be by Churchill and others 75 years ago. If we leave the ECHR, we get back control of our borders. Now, I thought we voted for that six years ago, tomorrow. All right, let's have one or two more. the highest in 40 years. No great surprise there. It's running at 9.1%. But we also hear today that one of the government's big plans over the next year is to increase benefits and pensions in line with inflation, perhaps even double-digit rises. Now, when you think about it, those in work are being offered 2%, 3%, maybe 4%. So if you're in work, you are relatively falling behind. And one thing I'm struck by, and I'm going to start debating tonight, but really examine over the course of the next few months and weeks, is if you're a young couple with a couple of kids, perhaps an elderly parent living with you, if you can get in excess of £25,000 a year in benefits, and that's tax-free money, what on earth is the point of going out of work? We've heard many times before about the trap that you're on benefits, you want to go to work, but the tax system makes it very, very difficult. But I'm beginning to think that situation's about to get worse. And I say that because we keep hearing about labour shortages, and yet immigration figures are the highest they've ever been. There are 5.3 million adults of working age in this country not working. A very large number on disability benefits. Quite a large number who appear post-pandemic to just not want to go back to work. But perhaps there's no real incentive if you're on benefits to do so. So please, you tell me, are people better off on benefits than going out to work and being on low pay? Give me your thoughts, Farage at gbnews.uk. I'll give you my thoughts. Uh, minimum wage doesn't cover the bills. So uh, if you've got to work for minimum wage, you're still not going to be able to cover your bills. So and you, in effect, you're working for a pound an hour more than you would get on benefits. So it's pointless going, going to work for minimum wage. I don't see why anybody would be expected to work for less than a wage that would cover their bills. And given that inflation is 9.2% or whatever it is, uh, people on benefits haven't had a an inflation increase since the start of universal credit, which is about seven years ago. There's been no increase at all in seven years, which means that they've effectively been having a, a cut in benefits every year for the last seven years. So if anybody says that, that people on benefits aren't entitled to an increase, they're full of shit, quite honestly. And they, they couldn't live on £300 a month, even if they, if they tried. It's very, very difficult to live on £300 a month. Almost impossible to live on £300 a month without having some kind of psychological issues like anxiety or depression or whatever else. And uh, it's a very tough thing to do. It's a very tough thing to, 
to expect people to do who are out of work. Uh, here's a little bit more of GB News. Uh, this is a bit about the, the current rail strike. I think we talked on Monday as well, just uh, not knowing quite how effective or patchy the rail strike would be. I mean, I know it's difficult to know for sure, uh, but what is your sense? How effective was the, the call to arms by the unions? Well, it was uh, quite effective, obviously. Um, you know, the roads were pretty congested, uh, whatever Simon Calder found. Um, but uh, but the network rail managed to run, they claim, uh, about 4,000, 4,500 trains out of the normal 20,000. Uh, the big problem, I think, was the fact that all the trains stopped at 6.30 because they only had one shift of signalers on. And once you have no signalers, you can't have a railway. And I think that uh, people found difficult. I heard stories of people kind of you know, walking back home for a couple of hours as the buses were full and they were unable to get home in any other way. Um, and of course, there was disruption this morning. But it, it, it's, you know, it's dealable with that it causes a lot of misery. And when misery happens, people, human nature suggests, will we'll blame someone. Uh, some people will blame the union, some people will blame, blame the government. But that's the game we're in, isn't it? And the proportion of people who blame one or the other is what will carry the argument. Yes, I'm interested that um, watching the Fox Pops on television and uh, looking at the existing surveys, that actually people are quite sympathetic to the unions. And I must say, uh, Mick Lynch, has, uh, the boss of RMT, has done a brilliant PR job in you know, challenging uh, the, the journalist to try and kind of uh, put, 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 portray him as a you know, militant and so on. And he, he's kind of uh, been a, a very effective voice for uh, the union. And we have to remember that uh, you know, it's not the union barons, as they've been called by uh, the government, who have uh, actually announced the strike and gone on strike. It's basically the rank-and-file members who uh, voted very overwhelmingly in favour of this strike um, and have uh, lived up to their votes by uh, staying away. And so this is not going to get resolved by... Uh, a lot of shouting from the rooftops. It's only going to be resolved by serious talks between the government and the unions because it is the government pulling the strings. And I think it was fantastically dishonest of uh, the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, to pretend that you know it was somebody else in charge, the railway companies or TfL in terms of the underground. It's absolutely not true. He's, uh, the government owns Network Rail. The government is in charge of the train operating companies. It is up to them to solve this. 
can see tactically why he wants to stay out of it, but I think a lot of people will agree with you, Christian Walmart, when they say ultimately the government can uh, play a decisive role in this. Where I'm not sure you're right is in, in saying that, you know, give peace a chance, eventually uh, good sense will prevail and there'll be a deal. Might it not be the case, actually, that if, if as reported this morning, the government's braced for this to go on months for a, an old 1970s-style battle of attrition, at the end of which they can... Uh, say pretty convincingly, we've won this argument. Uh, well, I, I think only if uh, the public opinion is with them, and it doesn't seem that it is. Uh, look, you know, lots of people, or most people, are suffering from uh, the, in the unexpected increase in the, in the cost of living. Uh, they can see that. Uh, the unions are not, you know, fighting for something absolutely crazy. They just want a reasonable pay rise. I think for ministers, as Simon Clark, the Treasury Minister, has gone done the round saying, well, I'm afraid, chaps, that, uh, you know, because we've messed up the economy so badly, you're going to have to have below inflation rises, and that's tough. And I don't think that message has gone down very well, do you? Not for me to say... Much I may, I may say, but not to you, Christy Walmart. Uh, I'm going to talk to you all about it, because I know you've got to go by 20 past, but we appreciate your time. Thanks very much indeed, Christy Walmart. Uh, Join us to talk about the rail strikes. All right, I'm going to cut him off there. Uh, that's pretty much enough, I think. And, uh, yeah, 25 minutes, so we'll keep this, keep this to 25 minutes. And uh, it's been a, a reasonable summary of what's going on. Uh, I'm going to do another show. Uh, later on this evening or early tomorrow morning if I wake up early enough well that's enough for now so thanks thanks for listening I'll catch you a bit later on